Welcome to the High Reliability Podcast, presented by Goslin Martin Associates. I'm your host, Peter Martin, president of Goslin Martin Associates. The High Reliability Podcast is focused solely on the healthcare facility management professional, and it's sponsored by the Career Hub. The Career Hub's powered by Goslin Martin Associates. We rolled it out in June, so if you haven't checked it out yet, please do so. You can link to the Career Hub off of our main website at goslin-associates.com or you can link to it directly at careers.goslin-associates.com. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Robert Feldbauer, System Vice President for Facilities, Construction, and Real Estate at UC Health in Cincinnati. Bob's diverse career has taken him all over the world, from the Philippines to the United, United Arab Emirates, from Syracuse, New York to Batesville, Indiana. Bob's career began in the Air Force, and after 22 years in the Air Force, he made the leap to healthcare facilities management. He has worked at community hospitals, and he's worked at major academic medical centers, and he brings a broad perspective to healthcare facilities management. Bob was one of the first 50 healthcare engineers hired by the Joint Commission as a life safety specialist surveyor. He has a Doctor of Business Administration degree. He has a master's degree in healthcare administration. And he's a fellow in the American College of Healthcare Executives and the American Society for Healthcare Engineering. Bob, welcome. Thanks, Pete. Uh, it doesn't seem all that long ago when you were in Cincinnati uh, visiting us at the beginning of this year, but in other ways, it seems like uh, a little bit of a lifetime ago, huh? <laughs> it certainly does. It certainly does. I, I that was uh, that was the middle of February, right, Bob? Oh, okay. Yep. Yeah. So uh, like, nice to uh, nice to hear you. I hope you're doing well, and your your family and others are doing well as well. We are. Thank you, and I hope uh, I hope the same to you. I know when I was out there in February, you had a busy location, which we will uh, get into throughout the course of this podcast. And I wanted to have Bob on, as you know, you heard in the introduction, he's got a diverse career with great perspectives, and I think one of the pieces of feedback that we've received relative to the High Reliability Podcast is. Folks like to hear um, others' career paths, and you certainly have a career path that is worthy of uh, folks to hear about from international to national. So why don't we uh, why don't we jump into it? And, and you know, why don't you tell us a little bit, Bob, about your career evolution from the Air Force to a VP for major healthcare system now for UC Health? Was it your goal to work in healthcare post Air Force, or did you come about this career by chance following your military service? Uh, well, a little bit of uh, uh, of correction on the on the Air Force years. I did spend 22 years total. I spent 12 years on active duty, and a couple of things uh, came together timing wise, where I decided that at that point I was going to pursue opportunities and continue with my Air Force career, which I did with another 10 years. So, at uh, around the early to mid 90s. Uh, I had completed my degree at Syracuse University in engineering. Uh, in the Air Force, I was an engineering technician, which uh, was drafting. And back in the days when I started, it was not computer uh, CAD drawing. It was sitting at a table, a drafting desk, and putting pencil uh, to paper. Also land surveying, and then as I got promoted up to construction management. Uh, at the base, I was at the time when I decided to get out, it came on the base closure list. Uh, I was looking to 
be reassigned to a position where I was on a payments evaluation team, not working in a base engineering uh, position, but on this teams, uh, they, in the early 90s, uh, if you can remember, the Soviet bloc uh, broke up. Some of those countries uh, were becoming friendly to the United States and the State Department and Department of Defense wanted to know on some of these former Soviet military airfields, uh, could they land uh, American aircraft? So these teams would go out for about a month at a time, and each team was doing uh, eight or nine assessments per year. So essentially, while I was going to be stationed in the U.S., I would be traveling all the time. Problem is, I had a young family, uh, two young sons. Uh, before I got to that base in upstate New York, I was on a remote assignment in the Philippines. I uh, was there when my youngest son was born and several months of uh, his beginning of life. So I decided to go ahead and look at opportunities. I happened to get two job offers at the same time. Uh, one was for a director of facilities at a uh, two-year community college campus uh, that was part of the State University of New York in upstate New York. The second one was for an assistant director of construction at an academic medical center in Syracuse. So uh, for one reason, lack of any other thought process, uh, the hospital job paid more. Uh, but number two, uh, I had been in base uh at base in the engineering, which is really a lot like being city engineers with the addition of having a major airfield on it. So the complexity of the hospital seemed more what I was interested in and leaning toward and could learn from versus uh, the campus and the academic buildings uh, that were there. So uh, that was my decision on getting into healthcare and I've been in there ever since and uh, with a little bit of luck. Um, uh, that's where we landed. So your question was, was it my goal to be in healthcare? My goal was really more to find a position in facilities and construction from the owner side. Um, I looked at education and healthcare, landed in healthcare. Excellent. Good, good evolution. How did the, uh, if you can think back, the transition um, from military into healthcare how was that? Was there? What was the learning curve like, and was it what you had anticipated? It was a pretty smooth transition. Uh, number one, from from the professional side, I had done military construction project management. So coming in as the assistant director of construction, those processes weren't uh, foreign to me. And when you look at academic medical centers in particular, and you look at the military, you switch out uh, colonels and generals with uh, surgeons and department chairs, and you get a lot of the same uh, <laughs> same folks here, uh, same thing you have to deal with and work through. So it uh, wasn't that big. The biggest thing for me at the time was when I entered healthcare. If you can recall back in the early to mid-90s, uh, Joint Commission up to that point had nurse and physician surveyors, and if you're a hospital of a larger size, an administrator surveyor. They were just starting to look more closely. They had always looked at environment of care, but they were starting to look more closely at the life safety standards, which were embedded in environment of care. So I, when I joined the hospital, I took that as an opportunity to really uh, learn those standards, become an expert in our facility. I had the opportunity to become, uh, through the state of New York, uh, a code compliance uh, 
officer and really get to learn back, you know, now that's expected. All facilities directors have to know that since we have the life safety engineers and everything else. But back then, uh, that was one area I was able to come in and really learn about how uh, hospitals are built and constructed for defendant place, but also to help on the uh, joint commission side. Excellent. Excellent. So let's jump from the past into the present. And obviously you're at UC Health, your major academic medical center, you're landlocked in Cincinnati. You have the University of Cincinnati located nearby. You're in a major American city. We're going through COVID-19. We alluded to it at the beginning. We have been since March. How have you fared and how has UC Health fared since the world turned upside down in March? So in Cincinnati, we had a little bit of a luxury, um, if you could call it that, of being one of the last parts of the country where uh, COVID-19 hit. So Peter, I don't know if you uh, had looked on the early days of those maps that you could find online that showed COVID spreading first uh, throughout Asia, then into Europe and Italy. But when it hit the clusters in the U.S., uh, there was pockets in the East Coast, in New York, pockets in the West, uh, in the state of Washington, then California. And we could watch the clusters move east and west from both directions uh, uh, over the days and weeks. So we did have a little bit of time, the advantage of a little bit of time to uh, and information really to get prepared. So within UC Health, uh, we did internal planning and preparation, but I believe importantly to our region, the various uh, competing health systems got together early to jointly plan, which gave us a uh, a citywide uh, preparation for a surge. Uh, some of the early modeling that came from various sources, whether it was University of Washington through the IHME, uh, University of Massachusetts, John Hopkins, some of those were quite scary. Uh, fortunately, most of those dire early forecasts didn't materialize, at least in Southwest Ohio. So a lot of our planning was in bed capacity, including alternate care sites, both within the hospitals, but uh, as an example, I was also involved in planning efforts to potentially turn our convention center in Cincinnati into a hospital for COVID patients in a recovery phase. But uh, fortunately, during that planning process, uh, the models began to change before we spent a lot of uh, significant dollars and resources on that location. Uh, we were able to stop it, but still very, very worthwhile exercises in planning. At UC Medical Center, those Early models also predicted uh, our ventilator usage to be more than double the capacity of our system, particularly the medical air system. So fortunately, uh, so we had to scramble to, uh, to buy, purchase, install quickly a new medical air compressor. Uh, fortunately, that compressor was on our capital list to replace. So purchasing and installing the new compressor to meet the demands of the forecasted usage, which did not come to fruition, uh, was not money ill spent. And of course, like other hospitals uh, across the country, we closely monitor things like supplies of PPE, masks, gowns, goggles, all that stuff. Are you um, are you returning to normal from a census perspective, from an outpatient perspective, from elective surgery perspectives? Yes, in the state of Ohio, they uh, opened that back up at the end of May. So we're finding uh, our census has, has been back to normal for uh, at least the last month now. 
That's good. It's interesting. So you talked about um, getting together with the other hospitals in your area and most people I'm sure know you, you, you border Kentucky, you're right on the Ohio River. Can you tell me a little bit about how that came about that, that I'll use the word consortium and was it a, was it a seamless process? Were people willing to work together? How, how did that come about and how did it go that working together? Well, uh, in, in Ohio, our governor had put together a task force, Governor DeWine and our CEO at UC Health, um, Dr. Rick Lofgren, uh, was a member of that task force, and Ohio broke uh, the state into sections uh, as part of that into regions. I'm sorry. So as part of that, um, it was through governor's uh, directives and requests that the healthcare systems come together. In Cincinnati, there is a, a collaborative called the Health Collaborative that all these hospitals uh, belong to. So through that uh, collaborative, it was a a pretty seamless process for the hospitals to begin. Uh, one of the differences is the hospitals uh, open up their data as far as capacity and, and really working to ensure if the surge ever hit, uh, where would be the uh, locations that patients would be sent to. So a lot of uh, planning put around that. But uh, uh, as far as um, it being able to help our city, of course, uh, each hospital didn't have to be on their own looking for beds um, that may have been able to switch those patients to other locations. Excellent. So um, you you have a busy time, obviously, in normal times at UC Health, but you're also, UC is also investing roughly $221 million over the next several years to transform your 14-acre Clifton campus You'll be uh, expansion and renovation of your 30-year-old emergency department, construction of a new three-story building to add OR capacity, new parking garages to increase your parking spaces by 1,300 spaces. What's your role in that transformation project, Bob, and, and where does it stand today? Well, I'll start with my role. My role is basically to lead the organization through the process, including senior leaders, our board, uh, key stakeholders. So when I arrived at UC Health four years ago, uh, the CFO for the system uh, uh, was talking to me and said, hey, the board really wants to move forward on a master plan for the Clifton campus. And having knowledge of the campus, I, I said, you know, it'd be money better spent at this point. We have 40 to 100-year-old uh, buildings and and older systems that are going to need uh, monies as well as the new shiny buildings that you're going to build as part of any master plan. So let me first start by doing a facilities condition assessment where we can look at the deferred maintenance and all the you know tens of millions that the system is going to have to uh, put into this campus along with any plans that come out of the master plan. So he agreed, uh, leadership agreed. We, we completed a, a pretty thorough engineering study, facilities condition assessment, and then I was able to advocate sense on an annual basis for capital planning of getting uh, monies in the millions uh, each year to start replacing some of our infrastructure. Having that knowledge, which that would have been, having that facilities condition assessment would have been part of a master plan. So having that completed at a more thorough level, we started the master planning process. 
there we really had to get a lot of uh, involvement and buy-in from our stakeholders. Um, each as we started to process each uh, UC Health board, we were asked to come and present. We presented to senior leaders. We had a committee set up to review how we we're going. But more importantly, or as importantly, with uh, our uh, physicians at the College of Medicine and our department chairs. Uh, we really kept them informed. I went to the dean's meeting and presented as the master plan progressed. I offered any of the uh, department chairs that I'll do a roadshow and come to your meetings anytime you want to get that type of feedback. Uh, we also had to get involvement of UC, uh, the campus facilities engineering group. We do get our infrastructure, a lot of our utilities from uh, the university. So to get them involved and knowing what type of, uh, of uh, plans we're having that they may need to know if they needed to upgrade their uh, existing plant. Uh, once we were pretty sure on the direction that the master plan was going, including the need for a new emergency department, I talked with the chair of emergency and I said, you know, most, most of your team has gone through residency here, been their whole career here, it would really be worthwhile to go out and visit a handful of emergency departments that were built in the last five years and learn what worked well, what didn't. So at least you can garner some other ideas. So he immediately got up that we were in his office, went around to his desk and started typing. And he's like, oh, I have a listserv with the, all the other chairs of academic medical centers. So uh, that was part of, we, we ended up selecting five and uh, it was really good to, uh, get folks uh, out and get them very interested in our process moving forward. And uh, so uh, that's part of how I need to bring the team and the process together. So now we're, uh, when you look at the project uh, phase, I have to look at, we do, have, do we have the people uh, processes and systems in place? So for example, uh, one project I, had immediately upon arriving at UC Health was to build uh, the UC Gardner Neuroscience Institute, which if you're not familiar with it, you can do a, a search of it. It's it's won awards for design and construction and, and a very unique building. But the plan when I came back to UC Health was to manage that construction through our design and construction team. But having spent time in the Middle East and on major billion dollar plus projects and having the background I do in new construction, it's quite a bit different processes than doing renovations within the hospital. So looking at uh, the people and processes we had in place, I decided I need to hire an owner's rep to work directly for me as a project manager. Uh, for example, uh, I also looked at the process of purchasing within our system and knowing what we had to purchase with medical equipment, furniture, and all the stuff we had, uh, IT systems from the owner's side. Also got approval from the COO and the CFO to um, have our own process for that project so we could bypass some of the, the times timing that was with the normal process. So now I'm in the master uh, project uh, phase where Again, uh, even though it was a successful project with UC Gardner Neuroscience Institute, do I have the, the processes in place to be successful in this? So I've added a few new things for these master plan projects. For example, uh, we just recently completed the programming phase. 
And at the end of that, uh, we worked with the CM who we selected and with the architect. And we came up with, uh, based on the scope we finalized in a programming phase, what's the estimate and does it meet uh, our budget? I then went and got a, a construction estimating firm to do an independent review and estimate of the project. We had a, a, a percentage difference. Um, they did it blind um, to the CM's work. We had a percentage difference. Uh, once they came back with their work, we put all groups together and we were able to close that gap to less than 1% difference. So we believe we have a pretty tight uh, uh, budget at this point to move forward into design. Um, I also plan on, which I didn't have on that project, for example, to hire a construction auditor uh, to periodically review our internal processes during construction to make sure all parties are performing to the plan and required documentation following policy. And lastly, uh, UCGNI, uh, which is the Gardner Institute, Neuroscience Institute, uh, was in a empty lot across from the hospital. These two new buildings I'm building are right in the center of campus. So I'm uh, hiring a life safety, uh, fire safety engineering firm to come in and help with the interim life safety measures uh, that we'll need to have in place uh, to ensure the safety of our staff and visitors and patients as we're building these new buildings. So that's basically um, my role is to make sure we have the processes, people and systems in place. So as I stated where we are today, we recently um, finished the programming phase. Uh, we're about to, we're beginning schematic design this month and we will um, to begin it in next year, start demolition of three new building or three buildings existing that'll make way for uh, the two new buildings. Great. So what is your, um, when is the construction plan to be completed or scheduled to be completed? Yeah, we're looking at uh, in spring of uh, 2023. Excellent. So just about three years of Major invasive construction, Hetty. I'm sure you're excited about that. Well, that's 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 uh, one of the great things of being in this job, right? <laughs> exactly. What I was going to ask you that, you know, as I'm listening to you speak, you've got oversight for master planning. You've got oversight for facilities planning, design, construction, which you're knee deep in. You've got oversight of facility management. You've got real estate management. How are you balancing it all? And is there one area that you of, of all that you manage that you have a natural affinity for? And if so, why is that? Well, the, the key thing for balancing it all is, is, again, I'll go back to people, processes and systems. So making sure you have the right people in place and uh, the right systems in place for them to be successful and let them do their thing. And it helps uh, the organization and even yourself be successful, right? So the natural affinity I would, uh, I would state what I would have to say is managing projects from the owner's perspective, but from the from the aspect that um, that was where I started my career in the Air Force managing projects. Uh, if you look at where I put my efforts on being a lifelong learner, uh, I have a master's degree in project management, but also completed a doctoral degree um, where my thesis was developing a framework to improve managing large healthcare construction projects. So if I had to look where I put my time and, and learning efforts, uh, the affinity would have to be on the project side. Now, having said that, 
I thoroughly enjoy the strategic planning process involved with master planning. And unfortunately, my role, you know, I get to have the, the best of both worlds, right? Being responsible for both. So at UC Health, when I, uh, when we could still meet, uh, if you will, in person, I would present uh, the master plan as I was going along to internal audience. I'd often uh, start by introducing myself and my title. And I would jokingly say, hey, if you want to know what my title entails or means, it simply means that I have the most fun and coolest job in the whole organization. So, and I believe that. Well, you know, everybody loves construction. Well, everybody loves it when it's done. Um, but everybody's got opinions. If you've gone to Home Depot, you have a you have an opinion on construction and flooring and finishes and all. I was going to... Um, you, you talk a lot about, uh, or you've talked often about people, process, and systems. Have you always been focused on people, process, and systems, or did that come to you through your military experience? Tell me a little bit, but is, does that fit who you've been? And granted, when we're younger, we don't talk people, process, and systems, but in what we do sometimes, we're that way. How, how did you come about that, and has it always been natural for you to think in that regard? Um. Uh- a little bit of um, watching over the years, very good leaders, and you start to see patterns. So uh, a lot of folks talk about mentors and having mentorship, but I think it's equally important to observe and listen and learn from people you believe to be good leaders. And I've had very good leaders in both the Air Force and uh, and in my career in healthcare. So what I look for in the people I observed is really attributes. Um, and if I could boil them down to a couple of things that the people I tried to learn from, uh, they had certain personal attributes as the way they work with others. And also they had a business or financial acumen that I tried to emulate. So if I looked at the three of those, when you're looking at, personal attributes, certainly to be successful in healthcare leadership and healthcare facilities leadership. Uh, You have to be smart. You have to be hardworking. You have a lot of folks um, that fit that category, particularly younger ones uh, that are coming up through. They're much smarter. uh, And I'm acting like I'm old, uh, a fogey, but I can, I guess I can speak to younger folks at this point. Uh, I've earned that. Um, They're very smart. And, and, uh, and, one of the things that I've, I've noticed lately is, um, at least in one instance, I should say, I shouldn't over-exaggerate it, is the commitment uh, when you're in a leadership role, particularly healthcare facilities. So uh, there's a work-life balance people are looking for, um, but hospitals operate 24-7 and, and 365. So how do they balance um, their work life with you know, knowing that there may be times that they need to answer phone calls or come into the hospital uh, when it's after hours or on weekends. So that's the part where I see have seen some struggle. I think also personally, you have to be resilient, right? You have to be thick skinned. There's going to be people who, um, for right, wrong, or indifferent, uh, as you say, everyone, anyone who goes to Home Depot is is a contractor. So. You have to have some uh, personal resiliency, uh, working well with others. You got to be a good, you know, not only great with your internal customers, nursing others, you got to be able to engage your team, empower your team. 
you have to be good with outside vendors and agencies. When agencies come in to inspect, you can't, you know, be getting on their case or you have to be uh, good partners with them. Outside vendors, when you're looking at being resilient, um, it's also a, a matter of being resourceful for your team and knowing what your team has the capacity and capability of doing internally versus where you need to uh, really count on your outside partners if something should happen in the hospital. And you can count on them to come in at two in the morning or you can count them to come in on weekends and they have the contacts to be able to open up supply um, partners they have and work with you. So you got to be a good partner and work well with others. And last, uh, you got to achieve results, right? You need to understand the business. You need to understand where healthcare is going. And you really need to know your role in taking the organization there. So you need to make strategic recommendations, know how your organization's managed and and what the key metrics are and, and move forward with that. You'd mentioned work-life balance and that topic. I'm always interested in that because we're always asked that by candidates and organizations. What do you tell, um, what do you tell, I guess we'll go younger folks or even people coming into healthcare or considering a career in healthcare. What would you tell them about work-life balance and a career in healthcare facilities management? Uh, I, I, Struggle with that one a little bit um, personally, because uh, if you ask my wife, I'm the person type of person who would never really bring up, hey, we need to plan a vacation or we need to do this, that or the other. So she's the, she's the one who's always in. You know, on the other hand, if I say, look, I'm getting to this point in whatever we're looking at, uh, completing a project, whatever the case may be, finishing the master plan over the next two months or three months. Uh, if I pretend during the day, I might get home at 530, just pretend, just know I'm going to be home at eight. I'm going to be working weekends. And she's fine with that. But at some point, she's smarter than me and says, you know, when that's done, we need to get away for a week. And uh, uh, so I'm uh, probably not the best as far as someone who's thinking about that myself. Now, with what I would recommend to others is you do have to consider that, of course. And within um, healthcare facilities, it's a matter of knowing uh, what strengths you have on your team, because as a director, say, you don't need to take that all on yourself, but you need to know what your team's capable of handling. You need to let the team know when they should take care of something. And you can hear about it in the morning when they need to take care of something, but they should notify you by text when they need to call you. And if they do call you, either you give them direction or you come in yourself or you uh, uh, notify your upper management. So it's all about communication and making sure you have the team in place where you're not the superhero taking care of things 24-7. Yeah. Clear expectations and communications. It sounds like you're laying out for everybody. Exactly. You, um, you, you have an interesting career. Um, switching gears a little bit, you spent, what is it, six years working abroad. You had three years where you were a project to work, project director working in gutter or gutter for a, a medical, re, medical and research facility that was affiliated with Wheel Cornell Medical School. And then three years as a COO for a teaching hospital, a 400, to 400 bed teaching hospital in the UAE. Why did you decide to go overseas? And are you pleased that you did? 
Well, I'll answer the first part first. Um, Police is beyond words. It was, it was a, a grand adventure that my wife and I are, are very, very happy uh, uh, we went on. So a little back, bit of background about me. Uh, I, I was in the Air Force, as we said. I had been stationed and living overseas twice, and I had been on numerous deployments across, across the globe. So international living or travel was not uh, foreign to me, uh, so to speak. Um, I also spent time um, with the Joint Commission as a consultant where I had the opportunity to consult in Qatar. I had visited the site and reviewed the plans for this new hospital that I was eventually uh, recruited to be part of the team. Um, in addition, as you stated, that hospital was affiliated with Wild Cornell Medical School. They actually had a, a branch campus, uh, campus uh, branch of the Wild Cornell Medical School in Qatar uh, uh, up and running. So with the Joint Commission, I had been doing uh, one year frequent uh, consulting for New York Presbyterian, who's affiliated with Wild Cornell, who were developing plans to assist with the planning of this new hospital. So when I was recruited for the position, I had quite a bit of firsthand knowledge already about it, right? And uh, if you look at Citra Medical and Research Center in Qatar, it was uh, just an unbelievably uh, a fabulous facility designed by Cesar Pelle, one of the best architects in the world who's uh, since passed away. So it was a grand adventure. And again, my wife, Melody, who's a uh, emergency physician and attorney, has that same passion for adventure. Uh, for example, she spent a summer traveling Europe before I met her. She's done missionary work uh, as a physician to places like Africa, Ukraine. So the opportunity was there for us, and it was also good. To, it was also good timing that our youngest son uh, had graduated uh, high school um, that year before and was in college at the time. So moving from Qatar to the UAE, uh, working in an internationally, they give you three-year employment contracts. After three years in Qatar, I'd essentially completed the operational planning required for opening the new hospital. However, there was a delay uh, uh, in the timing of the construction being complete. And therefore, instead of staying in a limbo planning role for a period of time, I was actually looking to come back to the U.S. when I got contacted by Abu Dhabi Health Services, which is a 12-hospital system in the United Arab Emirates that was interested in me becoming a CEO of a hospital that was about to start construction on a 700-bed replacement hospital. And uh, Abu Dhabi Health Services, which goes by the nickname Saha, it's a great organization. Uh, the 12 hospital system, they have a couple hospitals that are managed uh, through contract by Johns Hopkins. They have a couple that are managed by uh, Cleveland Clinic. Uh, I, the hospital I was going to was going to be managed directly by Saha. So it was a great opportunity, uh, which I gladly accepted. Do you, um, and it, it seems like both you and your wife were perfectly suited just based on the experiences and you, you were both world travelers prior to that. But if, if somebody's considering working overseas and they, they maybe don't have that background that you had prior to going over, what's important for them to know before they go abroad? And is there anything that surprised you in your experience that you weren't anticipating? Yeah, that's a great question. I'll, uh, I'll give you a, what I found a little bit funny. Uh, I arrived in, uh, I went to Qatar in 2010. That next year, 
the Arab Spring had started, um, where there was upheavals in Egypt, uh, Tunisia, uh, Syria started. But it didn't affect uh, the Gulf Coast countries, um, including Qatar, where we were. But back home in the U.S., we had many friends and relatives who were obviously concerned um, uh, when we, uh, because they saw the news, not knowing that it wasn't affecting where we were. Now, conversely, uh, when we would tell our friends, both in Qatar and the UAE, that we were traveling back to the U.S. Uh, to spend time with family and friends, they became concerned because are we going to be in, in uh, safe in the U.S. because they read about all these mass shootings. So from what they saw in the news, their idea of the U.S., it's the Wild West and you can't walk outside without dodging bullets. That's so funny. we had cons- yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we, we, we had concerns from both ends. And uh, if you think about it, I think there's a lesson learned there, right? Uh, yes. But I'll talk about my experience. I'll talk about my experiences in perspective, uh, professionally and personally. Um, professionally, I found to be successful, you cannot go with the ego. Ego, You have to be humble, a servant leader, and know that part of your role and expectation is to be a mentor for their national staff and help prepare them to assume leadership opportunities. So part of your role, regardless of its um, managing a 400-bed hospital, managing a billion-dollar construction. Part of your role, important part, is also to work yourself out of, posi- out of a position, meaning you've identified someone you can mentor uh, that's from that country, can take that over. Uh, the good part about that, for those expats who go with the right attitude and intentions, the local nationals will embrace you and treat you very, very well. Um, We've been back in the U.S. for about four and a half years now, but I will tell you, I still frequently uh, message with my Qatari and Emirati friends, and they'll uh, remain uh, lifelong friends. Uh, personally, uh, I'll, I can't speak to it from going over there single by yourself, but from a, a family experience, um, when you, I, I, I don't sure if it's the social circles much different than maybe moving to a new city in the U.S., but you find that uh, you and your spouse have to rely on each other and you spend much more time together than you would in your busy lives in the U.S. So um, once you get that social uh, circle and the expat community is quite good at embracing newcomers, inviting you to social events, it becomes a little easier from that aspect. But you and your spouse really do uh, uh, become closer uh, going through that together. And if you ever get the opportunity, and they're not presented often, but uh, we found if you get an opportunity to get invited to one of the nationals' homes or an event such as a wedding, uh, which is considered an all uh, an honor by all means, you have to accept. You know, so my wife and I have some very very dear friends from around the world that were expats. But if we talk about our uh, fondest memories or personal time spent, it's, it was with our Qatar or Emirati friends. They really do treat you magnificently and as VIP guests. Um, and the last thing I'll talk about is, particularly in the Middle East, it was just a wonderful opportunity to travel. Your your seems like four hours from everywhere. So for example, in our six years, in addition to living in Qatar and the UAE, we visited Bahrain, we visited Jordan, went to India, the Maldives, Thailand, Sri Lanka, Europe a couple of times. When you're 
when you're over there, people talk about going to these places on holidays, much like we talk about going to Myrtle Beach or Florida, right? So it's just a, a wonderful opportunity. And uh, Melanie and I have uh, packed in six years, a uh, lifetime of memories of, of seeing things, right? That's great. I, I you know, I've, I, you know, we're coming up on the end, but I just want to ask you two more questions. And one of them is, is based on what you just said as a leader, you know, when you're there and you said that you are embraced, um, that the, if you treat the, the local people, well, they will embrace you as you're, um, as you're learning who they are and they're learning who you are. Is it difficult to, you know, you know, here sometimes in America, we'll have people who, you know, for lack of a better term, they're sucking up to you because you can get them something. Now that's not everybody, but occasionally that happens, right? Does that ha- is does that happen there or like how do you how do you understand intent and how do you get to know who's who kind of all of those interpersonal all those interpersonal clues that you probably are able to 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 key in here on America. Is it difficult to do that overseas in a different environment when you're abroad? Does that question make sense? <laughs> yeah, and I and I'll answer it by saying uh it it's not difficult, but it is different. And uh, that's a good way let's to say let's it. talk about let's let's talk about um, working a project, for example, in the U.S. So even though everyone's uh, language is English, you could say that when you look at the team, the architects have some lingo and and language of their own different from what the construction management subcontractors have different from what the owners and have versus what the physicians or nurses might have as part of that team. So you all might speak English, but you have a little bit of, of uh, mm-hmm. difference in, in how you view things and, and talk, discuss things. Now, transport yourself into a position where you have people working from literally around the world with all the cultural differences, all the, uh, the majority of the folks, uh, English is a second language. So to be successful, you really need to become adept at acute listening and listening to subtle clues much more than you can ever imagine in the U.S. So, uh, for example, some of the cultural differences, even simple words like yes and no can't be taken literally because in their culture, you don't say no to management, right? So uh, some cultures. So you really have to be a good listener, know um, what they're trying to tell you and dig deeper with questions. Another example is even what you would believe to be a handshake deal. In the U.S. means if we we shook hands that we agreed to the terms, if you will, and that we're going to do what we agreed to. Over there, it's a little bit more looser where you may say, well, it meant that, okay, we've spoken and we may or may not speak about it again, but hey, good talking to you, right? So you have to, uh, you find yourself uh, really being in a position to understand uh, what is happening or what they're trying to convey uh, um, through language. And you do that by picking up subtle nonverbal clues. And just when I thought I was really getting good at that, I'm finding struggling again with uh, the new reality of virtual meetings. So when you're on virtual meetings, so you, you, you look up, some people are on video, some people are not. And uh, particularly for those who are, are not either, 
see their initials or see a picture, it's really impossible to pick up nonverbal clues, right? So as I'm presenting uh, to the board, which I've done virtually, or I'm, I'm having meetings with my team, or I'm having uh, meetings with uh, outside contractors or vendors, I'm trying to figure out how I can um, make sure things are smooth, that people are collaborating, because when you jump into a virtual meeting, I find that you just jump right into the meeting in the agenda. There's no small talk like you might if you were meeting in person. So I'm finding myself experimenting lately that um, uh, before meetings, if I know I'm coming up particular uh, important ones, I'm trying to get the personal touch back. And I might give you a five-minute phone call if you remember those things or walk by someone's uh, people if they're internal and ask them to go to lunch in the cafeteria and catch up or, or just stop by their office and talk. So I'm trying to figure out how to get some of that back where I'm, where I'm not losing that collaboration, which I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to do on these virtual team meetings. It's, you know, it's funny you say that. And if you figure that out, let me know. We did um, last week, you know, we do education seminars and we used to like to go out in person and do it. And we did our first, um, we did our first virtual presentation for HESNI, the um, Healthcare Engineers of Northern Illinois. And it's funny you say that, Bob, because that's exactly what I was struggling with prior to the meeting. I mean, you know, when you're in person, when you deliver a seminar, you just walk around the room and you talk to people. It's small talk and, and you're able to just have those informal connections. On this meeting, you know, I always get there early and I'm just kind of sitting there on the computer and I can see people how they, when they join, but yet there's that barrier there, you know, and I was, I didn't feel comfortable and, and, but then I had to remind myself, okay, this is a completely new technology. They're not in front of you. You can't go shake their hand. You know, so it's, it's funny you say that because I was thinking those exact same thoughts. How do you make those small connections prior to the formal presentation? Because all those connections help you, especially when you're talking construction projects or whatever it is you're doing, you kind of miss that when you're online and it's noticeable. Yeah, you're 100% right. So uh, one of the things I, I did talk to our infection control leaders and others as we get into the schematic uh, design process uh, to allow us to, with so proper social distancing and wearing a mask, uh, to have some of the attendees in person and maybe some of the architects or others that would join, kind of have a hybrid virtual and in-person meeting going on. So we'll continue to try to figure that out as we go along. But same on your end. If you get any good tips, let me know. I will. I will. Just to, to and it's so important too because in design construction projects. There's a lot of emotion that goes into it, like all the time. And sometimes that emotion boils over at either an OAC meeting, a programming meeting, a design meeting. And sometimes that's not a bad thing, you know, because that's how you can solve issues and problems if, as long as you can control it. But in, in that virtual reality, if you're not, you know, if you're not connecting in that interpersonal, I'd imagine sometimes those issues just fester from meeting to meeting. You don't solve them in, t you don't solve them immediately, hopefully solve them in time. So it's, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting shift. Last question, and I appreciate all your time. I'm speaking with Bob Fellbauer. He's the System Vice President for Facilities, Construction, and Real Estate at UC Health. Uh, switching gears, Bob, obviously, you're a vice president. People, from our perspective as recruiters, whenever you have a VP role, everybody responds to it. Because in theory, 
many people want to rise to a VP level. Not everybody, because they say, why would I want that? But many people do. They're always the most popular recruitments. If somebody aspires to be a VP and say they're you know early to mid-career, they're not right on the threshold, what advice would you give them if their career goal is to become a vice president at a academic medical center or in a healthcare environment for a, for a hospital? Yeah, that's a great question, Pete. Um, my best advice would be to ensure that you have a career that's deep in some area first and broad second. So what I mean by that is be an expert at something. So if you're com- there's many avenues to come into facilities, healthcare management, uh, make sure you have some level of expertise that's important to the organization. So if you look at healthcare leaders in general, for many years, it was the MHA resident, uh, trained resident that became healthcare administrators who led hospitals. Now, if you look at hospital executives, more come more and more come from th- uh, areas such as being nurse executives or physician executives who have that specialized expertise first and then broaden their management skills over time. So they're finding in those arenas general management skills uh, are no longer enough. And I, I'll argue, um, Peter, maybe you think differently that the day is coming where general facilities management skills uh, won't be enough to at least rise to the vice president level. So the question then becomes, yeah, so the question becomes uh, for the audience, what are some areas where a leader today in facilities can deeply focus and, and where does our industry needs some go-to leaders. Uh, Certainly in my purview, I think that understanding data analytics when it comes to facilities will become uh, increasingly more important. Um, Most healthcare organizations uh, over the last 10 or 15 years have adopted the mantra of saying they're patient focused, right? But as healthcare leaders, facility leaders, we don't represent one patient. You know, that's how doctors and nurses are trained. But for facility leaders, we don't represent that one patient at a time, but we represent the entire population in that space, including staff, visitors, and, and patients. So that's n- not become any more clearer than what we're going through now with uh, COVID-19. Yeah, generally in the healthcare field, um, we've not had the systems or data or analytics to help optimize that experience as a whole. So that would be one area I would see where it's needed. Uh, second, um, I don't think I need to be a futurist to say what the financial pact of COVID-19, um, it's pretty predictable that there will be an increase in hospital mergers and acquisitions. So if you're involved in any of those, learning and understanding how to merge those organizations from a facilities perspective uh, will be important, uh, even within o- your own organization as a uh, more people are going to the new normal work from home and we have available real estate um, that we need to figure out. Do we sell, do we repurpose or do we dispose of will be key um, things that people can have uh, expertise in. Um, so that would be it once for, for deep, you know, getting a deep expertise. And when you do have the opportunity to broaden your experiences Uh, A couple of advice. Um, uh, Number one, leadership has uh, no shelf life. So you have to be a continuous learner. You need to read. 
Uh, you need to read outside of healthcare facilities management uh, um, magazines and and read uh, others like Modern Healthcare, Marion College Healthcare Executive Materials. Really know where the industry is is going because a lot of as a VP, uh, you're making a lot of judgment calls, right? So that's mm-hmm. based on your experience, your education, and your reading and learning. So you gotta you gotta read. Uh, second, I think as people come up through the uh, I'm being I'm speaking generally, but too many facilities managers um, as they're coming up through, they hang around people like us, right? So you only attend local or national ASHI conferences. ASHI is a great organization. I wouldn't be in my career uh, without them. But you got to get out of your comfort zone. You know, start attending uh, local ACHE meetings or education sessions or healthcare finance uh, professional member meetings. Train yourself to. Um, be comfortable having conversations with others and it'll assist you when you become VP, uh, whether you're talking to board members or community members. And I think last uh, thing I would mention uh, that I believe is important, if you do become VP, you have to have a point of view. And what I mean is you need to develop where you want to take your organization and you need to know how to advocate, advocate for the uh, funds or resources to attain your goals. I'll give you a quick example at UC Health. Uh, when I arrived, I developed a one goal, one sentence goal, and it is uh, align facilities with the vision of UC Health being a world-class enterprise. So that's where our organization wanted to go. We developed that. So what are the opportunities to get us there from the facility standpoint? So I developed four opportunities. Every time I meet with staff over the last four years, we bring these four same bullet points up, but now they've seen year after year what we've been able to do to attain these opportunities. So the first one we said, we're gonna become intentional in upgrading our aging, aging facilities and physical plant. So they've seen over the years where we've done the facilities condition assessment, where we've got tens of millions of dollars for infrastructure uh, and and resources for them to then maintain what we, what we fix. Uh, number two, we said we're going to develop a facilities design standards that contributes to the UC Health brand. Work very, very closely with our senior vice president of marketing communications. Uh, we we had a architect firm and a branding firm jointly come together to develop those standards, which I was then able to take to our UC Health board and advocate for $30 million to start uh, upgrading the aesthetics, which we call the refresh uh, project at UC Medical Center to meet those. Uh, third was to improve the planning and delivery of our construction renovation projects. Uh, the fourth was to ensure continuous compliance with uh, accreditation regulatory. On um, both of those, we uh, went and got the systems in place, more information systems uh, from the project management software to uh, a platform for our life safety drawings for a commercial a work order system versus the homegrown one they were using for 20 years so that we can uh, improve on those systems as well. So you have to have a vision. You have to let the organization and, and let your senior leaders know where you're going to take it. And then you have to be at, able to advocate at your capital committees, at your with your other system, hospital CEOs, with the board, and get those resources you need to make that vision come to fruition. Excellent. Great. You know, it's... um. Great answer. You could, we could do a podcast just on, you know, you, the first thing you um, talked about uh, understanding data analytics, because 
that is something that's I don't want to say foreign because it's becoming more popular, but that would be an interesting topic to delve into perhaps for another podcast. But Bob Fellbauer, System Vice President, UC Health in Cincinnati, Ohio, thank you for your time today. Pete, uh, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, stay safe. We'll talk to you soon. And please tell uh, my friend Jack I said hello. Jack, Bob says hello. This is Peter Martin, Gosselin <laughs> Martin Associates from the High Reliability Podcast. Jack does listen to the ball. So Jack hears you now. Thank you for joining. And um, we'll be back in touch soon with another episode of the High Reliability Podcast. Thank you and have a great day.